So we're on? Okay. Uh, I'm going to ask you to turn to Isaiah 2, chapter 2, to uh, verses 2 to 5. Um, and while you're doing that, let me introduce this. Uh, this series called The Gathering Storm is addressing the challenges facing the households of religious Jews and Christians. We've looked at the rise of secularism, which is challenging the biblical revelation and the biblical narrative. And secularism in the modern era uh, brought about the modern behavioral sciences of anthropology, psychology, and sociology, which gave us alternative perspectives on human origins, diversity, the foundations of our problems, and utopian solutions. Postmodernity is redefining the modern notions of reality and truth, and by its extreme subjectivity and relativism, uh, are really the basis for new ways of thinking in this area, like critical race theory and gender fluidity. Today what I want to do is talk about the definitions that are emerging now for race and racism. So if you'll turn to Isaiah chapter 2, 2 to 5, we read these words. It will come about in the last days. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many people will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. And the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations, and render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Great text, fantastic hope of what's going to be. I want you to notice here that the Bible is referring to the people groups around the world as the nations. We've already talked about that. The Bible has a pre-modern context. Now, there are people who think that means that the Bible doesn't know about things. That denies it being a revelation. Okay, Uh, The argument that just because we've changed something that makes it real, is not necessarily true. So, in the pre-modern Western cultural worldview, because of its influence by the scriptures, the Babel story of origins of people groups was the major story. It divided us by languages, and therefore cultures or ways of life, and areas of origin. Now, skin color, hair texture, and other phenotypic expressions were known to the ancient world, but they were not considered significant. What divided people was their languages, their kinship connections, their ways of life, and their gods. This is generally what we think of as ethnic variability and differences. And because most people didn't travel far, they generally only knew of other people as being different uh, in the way they lived, not in this way that we think of as race, but by their way of life. Most languages separate us, and others, I mean, what what I'm saying here is, most languages separate by the way the, the, the language operates between us, 
whoever that language group is, and others. Not others in plural kind of thing, but just generally others. Like Jews and Gentiles, the nations, right? Or Americans and foreigners. I mean, almost all languages have that kind of division where they focus on themselves and they see others as other because they act different, they talk different, they think different in that sense. Now, the modern world took the idea of race as a kinship group or a people group and changed it into a biological categorization, a taxonomy, if you will. And evolution then became the frame for that and argued that our biological differences and our cultural differences were tied together. That's really important. I talked about that last, last week. Now, I call this scientific racism. It was the idea that there was a scientific basis for race and that race was biological and that biology was directly tied to cultural expression. And what scientific racism claimed was that people with dark skin were associated with a more primitive brain and a lesser intellectual capacity. This racist view became dominant in the 1800s and reinforced the idea of superior and inferior races. And I talked about that last week with the uh, anthro theory of unilineal evolution of cultures and the eugenics movement. Anthropologists in America attempted to separate the idea of biological and cultural development and the civil rights movement also in the 1900s argued for the equality of all people claiming that character rather than race mattered. Last week I explained that this progress against race and racism was disrupted by the emergence of post-modernity which changed the meaning of race, gender, and class as well as sexuality. This was a rejection of objective reality and the idea of a single truth. And these were now replaced with personal truth or a personal narrative based on individual experience and relative perception, especially feelings. Included in this shift was the idea that equality was not possible without a major change in social structure. The goal now is equity Equal outcome becomes the measure. Now, critical race theory is part of this new way of proceeding, and it is already well entrenched in our universities, in higher education, and in the training of public school teachers, and in the leadership training for sensitivity and diversity in business. Its history started in legal theory, but it has become the present fad in the social and behavioral sciences, particularly in sociology and social work, but it then transferred into political science in that framework. Now, CRT is not a single doctrine. There are a lot of different versions of this. There's no clear parameters of where it starts and where it ends, and that's because of its post-nature underpinning, its post-modern underpinnings that are there. Now, it views race as a social construct, not a biological reality. And with that, the American anthropologists would have, would have agreed that 
that race is what you see in a given historical culture, particular history. So race in America is largely connected to black and white. Race in South Africa was somewhat different, but that modern notion of who was on top and who was on the bottom was a belief that it was biologically based, but it really wasn't. So critical race theory acknowledges that race is not a uh, biological reality. But if you read the proponents of this and you listen to what is being taught, there is a tendency by the adherence of CRT to treat race as a concrete reality, not a reality that's biologically based, but one that is based on appearance. So skin color still plays a part in that sense. They treat race that way, at least temporarily. Some of them think that they have to do that to move out of it, uh, to allow certain inequities to be measured and remedied. If you're colorblind, you can't do that. Okay? And here's where the dangers lie. The real idea is that those in power are predominantly white, and those without power are people of color. This inequity must be remedied by creating policies that favor people of color and hinder the continuation of dominance by white people. It cannot be based on merit because the merit itself is racist. This is complicated by the idea of white privilege or advantage and white fragility or defensiveness. White privilege is the idea that white people generally do not have to think about their whiteness regarding normal access to public benefits as citizens of a given culture. And this has been historically correct in America and caused white people either to just take it in stride, almost as an unconscious thing, or to enter into support of people of color who are struggling with discrimination. In that old modern concept of race, those who were awakened by Martin Luther King's letter to, from a Birmingham jail moved into the civil rights movement in that context. White fragility is the emotional and behavioral response of being confronted with the privilege as being inherently racist, a concept that becomes systemic racism. And this is the new definition of racism. So you really need to understand that because when people are using the word race, they have very different meanings. So racism went from the idea of biological superiority or inferiority to a psychological attitude of prejudice and discrimination towards someone based on skin color or so-called race. That was the modern view. Now it's become inherent that anyone who is white, albeit unconsciously, is racist, and it's manifest through the cultural structures of America. Overtly racist in the past, in things like slavery and the Jim Crow laws that separated, segregated people, 
allowing discrimination in housing and job opportunities. But because it's systemic now, its operation in institutions like the police and in schools with subjects like mathematics are racist. The belief is that if these things were not racist, people of color would be represented in numbers that approximate their population in the nation. So if blacks do worse at math, it's because math is racist. And it reinforces that white superiority in that framework. Okay? Now that sounds to many whites like reverse racism. But it's argued that this is anti-racism. Anti-racism, new term, is a push for social policy that makes no value judgments on, on color groups, but encourages equity in social sharing of power and resources, hence the redistribution thing. Now related to this is the idea of victimization that one experiences as a result of systematic racism. And this is tied to a concept called intersectionality. I'm just going to introduce this here because I'm going to talk more about it next time. Intersectionality is a way of calculating the discrimination that you are under. So a black lesbian woman is at the intersection of race by being black, sexuality by being lesbian, and gender by being a woman because white heterosexual male would be the power position. A person with only one or two areas of intersectionality is at less risk than someone who may have four or five or six. So if she added to that being uh, uh, impoverished and she added to that being uh, disabled in some way, that would add to it. We're going to address this next week when I talk about oppressors and the oppressed. But I do want to address this issue of discrimination and prejudice. Because these are foundational to the modern understanding of racism and group hatred, and they are being removed from the conversation. And in this case, anti-Semitism, and you've read books on that, uh, is a form of racism in that sense. So I want to start with prejudice. What is prejudice? Prejudice is to judge an individual based on their perceived group identity without any consideration of their own character, individuality, and intent. So what you are doing is you are attributing a characteristic, a stereotypic characteristic of a so-called group to an individual, and that is prejudging them. You know nothing about them. You really don't know the group. But since this is associated with the group, and this person appears to be a member of that group, you then judge them accordingly. And on that basis, you make an act of a behavior towards them or against them. That's the function of racism. And in diversity classes, I always maintain that if you see somebody, you can suspect something about them, but you can't know anything about them without actually knowing them. And that that, that is where we really have to change the way we think. Now, 
critical race theory has several flaws that can cause it to actually be reverse racism. Because to assume anything about a white individual is also prejudice. And to act on it is discrimination. And therefore, prejudice and discrimination are being taken away and oppressor and oppressed is now the substitute. Power and powerless. And that can then be done on a race base or at least on a skin color base. Now, there is a difference here and this is my concern. The difference is that so-called so white Americans because they never had to think about being white don't have a history of persecution and they have no cultural motivation for compliance to any form of discrimination. And as a result, what began to happen in the 60s is that many whites began to become more and more militant and this kind of talk is pushing more into the only white identity of American history. And that's the Confederacy. That may be why we are seeing a rise in the rhetoric and in the symbols of the Confederacy. There's nowhere else for white people to go and have a collective identity. Because they always had an individual identity and they were not really thinking of themselves as white. It's important to understand that the target of CRT is white Christian nationalists. And while there is a serious threat from some of these groups, probably not as great as the media is portraying it, the CRT group cannot seem to see the difference between a white who is racist and a white who is not racist between a Christian diasporist and a Christian nationalist, and between patriotic citizenship and extreme nationalism, because it's one size fits all. I'll talk about that next week. So how do we proceed? Well, I think biblical categories give us a way of proceeding that's a better way. Instead of succumbing to the, the rhetoric of these groups, we need to stay with biblical concepts. Okay, So let me give you a text that I'd like you to look at. Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter uh, 13 talks about how we interact with the government. We'll talk about that later. Chapter 14 talks about how we deal with a form of pluralism, people thinking differently about different things. And in chapter 15, we are told this, verses 1 and 2. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength, and not just to please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good and to his edification. I believe that the body of Messiah needs to be involved in this, but we need to not do what we have traditionally done. Those who are liberal politically jumped into the liberal political framework, and those who are conservative politically jumped into the conservative framework and fought this politically. We need to 
deal with this relationally. Which means, if you find that in a given situation, you are in a stronger position by role or by context, then you have an obligation towards the person who is in the weaker situation to help them. To help them as a believer in the God who created us all equal. And if we will do it that way and voice it that way, we will not be confused with those who are doing it in a political policy manner. We're not to be pleasing ourselves, but we are to try to seek the betterment of our neighbor, that stranger, that this trumps back to the, uh, uh, the Good Samaritan idea. Where it doesn't matter that the Good Samaritan had nothing to do with that man's condition. But he was in a position where he could help that man for his good. And that's what he did. And that's our calling as the body of Christ. This starts with our fellow believers who are people of color. And then extends to any stranger or neighbor who is in a weaker condition. We are not to see our strength as superiority, but as blessing. And as opportunity to love our neighbor as our own self. We need to monitor also what our children are being taught. Some teachers in the public schools have the CRT agenda. And others are simply naive and don't know any better because that's what they were taught in grad school. So if group status rather than individual character is being taught to your child in school, you need to confront it gently but firmly, not militantly, not politically, wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. Now I think CRT is a fad, but it's being fueled by several other movements that are also working together to fundamentally change this country and this culture. And while this culture and country is not perfect, and there are many things that need to be changed, the unintended consequences of seeing race through white superiority or white inferiority will make this country and our common welfare worse, not better. So I want to close with one other passage, and that is Revelation 7. You and I need to think in terms of ethnic differences, not in terms of racial differences. In Revelation chapter 7, this was mentioned last week in the Q&A, uh, already had it scheduled for here. In verse 9 it says, After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and all peoples and all tongues. Notice the categories. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, palm branches were in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might. Almost sounds like the Kaddish. 
be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered me and said, answered saying to me, These who are clothed in white robes, who are they and where have they come from? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God. They serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will spread His tabernacle over them. And they will hunger no longer. They will thirst no more. And the sun will not beat down on them nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. God created the nations. They are not going to end, but He is going to redeem them. There will be a remnant from the nations in the redemption. That's what the church is all about. And central to it is the people of Israel. We have to think in biblical categories. We have to teach our children to think in biblical categories. We cannot do this through Postmodern concepts. Even the modern concepts were problematic. We need the biblical categories. We need to see it through the eyes of the Lord. We need to teach our children to love God, to love their neighbor, and to love one another. And we need to see ourselves as uneven now and with a calling to redistribute individually and locally, not by policy and not by some governmental framework. That kind of power always leads to corruption and to persecution. And it is not in our interest to encourage that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.